I feel like my intros may need to be longer than a minute because sometimes I have a lot to say. So let me try to get right to it and let me know. I want to hear from you on Twitter or somewhere on social media. Do you like me just getting right to the show? Anyhow, I've wasted 13 seconds. If you're new to the show, welcome. We have thousands of new listeners over the past couple of months. So welcome. I'm Evan Brand, your host, certified functional medicine practitioner, board certified holistic nutritionist. And I'm talking to Arthur Haynes today, who is a botanist and a guy who's interested in getting people to rewild themselves. What exactly does that mean? Well, you're about to find out. In the meantime, I run a clinic four days a week, and you can schedule a 15-minute free call with myself back at my website, notjustpaleo.com, and we can talk about some functional lab testing and making sure that your adrenals are healthy, your gut's healthy, you can actually detox and be happy and healthy overall. So here's the show. Enjoy my conversation with Arthur. Arthur Haynes, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me be part of it. Yes. So I found... I found you, I think you and I met, like I said, briefly at Paleo Effects a few years ago, probably 2013 or so, and I loved that, I think you were barefoot the whole conference, so that was my first reason why I knew I would like you. <laughs> yeah, I was enjoying that no one was yelling at me for being barefoot. That's awesome. So tell people a little bit about yourself. You do several different things in terms of books and consulting and workshops and all sorts of various things that are helping people to basically rewild themselves, get themselves accustomed to what life is really about and what foods we actually should be eating and not be afraid of and things like that. Yeah, I work, um, part of my work is actually as a professional botanist where um, I spend time helping people learn about plant taxonomy. And that's a sort of a broad field, but you can think of it as one of the key components of taxonomy is helping people learn how to identify plants. And of course, this comes in extremely handy for people who are trying to transition away from, you know, maybe a diet that is 100% cultivated foods to something that includes uh, wild foods. And plants are sort of often the first place that people begin. It's sort of, I call it the gateway to wild foods, sort of like the gateway drug to wild foods, because uh, many plants do not have laws and regulations around them as hunting animals and fishing uh, does. And other than that, I obviously I'm sort of interested in virtually all topics that relate to rewilding the human species and those ancestral life ways or what sometimes get called primitive living skills that allow people to you know, separate from an industrial life, life way uh, for at least some part of their existence if they wish to. Um, and so to help with that, I obviously write books on this topic. I'm nearing the end of a draft of a, of a really large rewilding reference that's taken me a couple of years to pull all the information together. And I've written foraging books and I have a website that you know, people can find me, and there's free content there that um, they can read about if they so choose. Awesome. So, did you live in a big city at one time in your life, and then you got burned out of it, or how did this? Was there a transition process, and if so, how did that happen? Well, there really wasn't. I I was very fortunate. I grew up uh, in Western Maine, which is a mountainous region, and and again, these are the Appalachian peaks, so they're not necessarily the highest mountains in the world, but they're still very rugged peaks. Uh, we had um, a lot of forests, really pristine waters that you could drink from. In other words, 
you know, our rivers uh, in this part of the world were, or at least the ones that I grew up on, were extremely clean. And so we spent our entire childhood fishing and swimming and playing along these rivers and hiking in the mountains. Um, I got interested early on in primitive living skills um, through reading books like those written by Tom Brown and others. And I've always had that sort of deeply nature-immersed life way. I'm very, very fortunate. Um, I've never really lived in any major cities, although I've lived in what I would describe as some pretty big towns during my time at the University of Maine, um, where I worked on getting a, um, a degree in both wildlife management and plant biology. And then I moved back to the rural parts of the state where I really enjoyed um, so I'm just totally fortunate that I've had that kind of experience essentially my entire life. I mean, that's so cool. So maybe things change as you get older. For me, you know, I guess the one thing that's kept me from going out completely far away, you know, completely into like the Cumberland Plateau or something in eastern Kentucky is just family. But as you grow older and as your kids grow older, does your intermediate or I guess your immediate family unit does that become your main family and then other family sort of becomes an accessory or how does how does that part of of life work out at least in your case yeah that's a really good question um and how to answer that in a nice succinct way um I I have lived away from my family for a lot of my adulthood and when I say away from them I'm, I'm talking you know two hours or so so that I did get to see them, um, but it was, you know, beyond holidays and special events. It was just now and again. I'm really fortunate that um, now with the birth of our daughter almost three years ago, I have moved to an area that's about 45 minutes travel to my family and make it a point to go there uh, a lot more often so that obviously my, uh, my daughter can learn that side of the family because we don't, you know, we're not living super close to any of my um, very close relatives that I grew up with and have a, you know, a, a really personal relationship with. Um, yeah, so we're closer now than I have been for a lot of my time. And I think it took me a while to realize how important that was, uh, especially once you started raising a child and you realize that the community is so vital for this because two parents out in the middle of a wilderness can be overwhelmed at times <laughs> with, you know, with that child raising duty. Yeah, understood. My wife has, uh, uh, my wife and I, we just had our, our baby as we're speaking now. She's five weeks old. So we're. Oh, that's so awesome. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, great. so we're figuring it out. We're, 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 you know, putting our, our, our toes in the water in terms of figuring out where to go. There's definitely some great places, you know, east of here uh, towards the, you know, the Cumberland area where there's lots of mountains and good trees and plenty of land and all that. So we're just kind of uh, dabbling in that. So I appreciate your advice for that. Well, the big thing for me here is I wanted to make sure uh, that my daughter was essentially able to spend time in nature. And I'm not saying that has to be a large wilderness area, but that she has access to wild vegetation, trees, streams, contact with the soil, clean air, all of those kind of things that, you know, young children should have, because I think it 
really makes a huge difference on how their development goes. And in fact, there's good research to support that, you know, nature immersion is really good for humans of any age. Um, and so I really wanted to have that, and that's something we're super fortunate to have for her. Absolutely. That's awesome. So do you feel like, and, and I guess you don't have other children or previous experience to compare it to, but maybe just looking at at the the average child out there, do you see a difference in terms of her stress response, in terms of her emotional stability and things like that, since she is able to be immersed so often? Well, yes, but with a caveat. Um, I, I notice significant differences between my child and other children, and part of that is just what they're exposed to and what their parents are teaching, whereas Samara may be focusing on the wild edible that may be at the home that we're visiting or on the bird song, um, and she'll be running barefoot, for example. You know, the other children might be focused on um, more on their toys or on the television or something along those lines. And, you know, they're not necessarily, their parents aren't trying to make sure that they don't have an atrophy to their foot muscles and connective tissue over their lifetime. You know, so we're focusing on certain aspects of the rewilding life weight here. But what we notice really importantly is our daughter, you know, she's, she's two and she definitely has those periods of time where she is just unable to control her emotions um, because, you know, for whatever reason, something that she wanted to do that may have um, been too dangerous for her at this time to do. And what we often need to do is when we're in the home, when these sort of episodes are occurring, we simply pick her up and go outside and it all melts away. Um, the, the outdoors is definitely highly therapeutic to her. And anytime we're having trouble, that is our go-to method to just hold her, take her outdoors and let her be sort of blown away by, you know, how much there is this sort of infinite complexity outdoors that just changes her mood, calms her down, and then we can come inside and talk about it. That's amazing. Well, I'm glad you have the same experience. Last night, our daughter was crying. My wife gave her a bath. I think she was a little bit cold, a little bit fussy. So I just thought, man, it's fine. It's cooled down. It was like 95 degrees here yesterday. It was crazy. And a storm rolled in, so it cooled off. So I took her out back. And the first second that her and I sat down on the grass under, we have a few large trees in the backyard. As soon as I sat down, she just immediately snaps out of it and she goes into like a daydreaming trance. It was just so amazing yeah. to watch. It was amazing. Yeah, that's, that's very much our experience. And we essentially rarely, if ever, run into a period where she's having a really hard time controlling her emotions outdoors. 99.9% of the time we're indoors when that happens, um, which really tells me something, at least with our daughter, how they respond to this indoor environment where boredom and other things is a lot more prevalent in the outdoor world. What is that in, in, your, in your thoughts? Is that just lack of visual stimuli? Is it because there's no depth available for the eyes? Like, is it everything, the air toxins? I mean... I, I definitely think everything that you've mentioned is important. I mean, our houses are, are geometrically pretty depauperate compared to the outdoor world, squares and spheres and triangles with not much texture or complexity in a depth fashion as you're needing to look through things. And really that just changes when we go outside. I mean, I'm looking out my window now as I'm talking to you and I'm watching 
uh, these gray birches and northern red oaks swaying in the wind. And I mean, there's just a hundred layers of vegetation within, you know, the first 30 meters that I can see through. And I really think that that's important for the human brain. It's what they, what we evolved in, not necessarily a forest, but having this type of complexity and having that broad expanse, whether we're in the forest or the open, we don't feel closed in. Um, I'm not saying that the home environment is not without its benefits because we certainly feel safe and protected very often in this environment. But I think we spend, well, I know we spend way too much time in it. I mean, the average American is about 90% of their time indoors. And I think it has an effect on their emotional well-being and sanity sometimes. Agreed. So you would think, and not, not to put words in your mouth, but you would almost say that boredom is sort of a modern side effect, if you will, of our sedentary but also indoor lifestyle. Yeah, I can at least say that um, it certainly is in our home with our daughter, no question. And, you know, part of the reason is while we certainly do have computers, and I'm not saying that we never watch a movie on these computers because we do that from time to time, but we don't have a TV that is the babysitter for us. And so, you know, Samara, without having, that's my daughter, Samara, uh, without having this constant fire going that could be watching or the TV going, those kind of things that can distract her attention, you know, she only wants to play with these items or have books read to her or whatever the case for so long before she needs to just stretch limbs and her mind by being outdoors. Right. And, and, you know, our setting is pretty unique, I think, for most people. It's almost a mile in every direction to our nearest neighbor. Um, so we have phenomenal privacy and safety in terms of not needing to worry about other humans. Our daughter and, and the nanny, um, when she's here during the, during the working week or with us when we're out there in the evenings and on the weekends with her, is just free to go in any direction that she wants to go and explore. And it's just, it's amazing to watch this, this young human. They're a scientist in their environment because they're, they're sampling, they're checking, they're exploring, they're testing. When I do this, this happens. Does the same thing happen again? I mean, they really are functioning as this scientist exploring a new world. Fortunately, it's a world that she'll ultimately become very familiar with. That's funny. That's awesome. Let's talk about food a little bit. I know you're a, a big fan and you know a lot about wild foraging. What what types of foods are you getting up there? I remember seeing a video where you were harvesting some wild rice. What else and what all is up there available for you? Well, Maine, uh, where I live, and I, I do travel all over New England, um, so where southern New England certainly is pretty heavily impacted by development, a lot of northern New England, and that would be Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, for people not familiar with this part of the world, we have some pretty intact landscapes. And certainly there's a lot of farming and, and homes and, and some industry and those kinds of things, but we have lots of places that it's safe to forage because the soils and the waters are clean here. And and I really, it would take me a long while to list to you the foods that we eat in the <laughs> season. Um, you know, often, I, I actually counted it up one time and in an average year um, I add about 75 species of plants 
to the diversity of cultivated foods that we're also consuming. And well, I was just really happy, of course, because that's approaching the kind of dietary diversity that indigenous people have access to. Um, you know, most most of them living in sort of the eastern United States would have been consuming, you know, 80 to 100 or more species of plants, um, you know, in a, in a season. So... Right now, um, we, we're in that wonderful time of year where we have some of the berries that are coming edible. Um, our, our wild strawberries, for example, have just passed, but now both the red raspberry and the black raspberry, um, you know, she's some of the things that, you know, an adult would consider to be extremely novice, like how to tell when a raspberry is actually mature, when it's ripe. She's still learning sort of the color the the texture of it and how easily it separates from the plant while you're picking it you know those are the those are the sort of uh, difficulties that a two-year-old forager runs into so <laughs> a lot of what i'm doing i'm trying to incorporate uh, some things i can't because maybe i'm wading out into water and those kinds of things but when i can i'm trying to bring her along that's great. How does this work logistically? I mean, are you going to national forest? Like how, if there is so much land available, is this private ownership? Is it public land? I've always wondered about that because Daniel, he's been posting a lot of pictures about his wild foraging adventures. And I haven't asked him, like, how does this work? In, in Maine, um, for example, it's very different than it would be in other parts of the world. We have very little public land. I mean, compared to the Western U.S., you know, Maine has very, very little. Um, almost all the ownership is private ownership. Some of it is large corporations that are, uh, you know, part of the forestry industry and paper mill industry. Um, so here in Maine, the law is essentially if there is no signs telling you that there, uh, trespassing is disallowed, in other words, you have to stay off the property, you're free to go on that property. And so long as you are not doing harvesting on a commercial scale, you know, if you're picking some blueberries or raspberries or you're gathering some spring greens or picking up acorns in the fall, whatever the case, most landowners don't even pay attention to it. You know, people get in get really interested when you're walking out of there with, you know, hundreds of pounds of food because, you know, usually in this part of the world, people are selling that and then you're making money off someone else's property. Uh, but other than that kind of thing, when you're collecting for personal use and sort of being discreet and being respectful of people's land, you're just free to go everywhere. Um, we also have a great ponds act here that any water body that's greater than 10 acres in size, you, your access to it cannot be denied, which opens up all of the lake shores and pond shores except for the smallest ones. Um, our rivers and intertidal areas are also open to public access. So we, I mean, in most of Maine, unless you're talking about, you know, south coastal Maine that's more heavily developed because you're near the Atlantic Ocean, you just have access to thousands and thousands of acres of property for foraging. That is mind-blowing. Yeah, <laughs> it's wonderful. That is amazing. Well, at this point, I think the population of Maine will probably increase after this episode. We'll see. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, to be clear, you know, Maine has, we have farmlands and we have forestry and we have some things that have certainly fragmented our forest. Right. And so I don't want to get people thinking that this is this complete, pristine, you know, cover of forest over the entire state. But 
you know, forestry operations that are felling trees generally are not polluting. Um, so even though those forests have been cut, they come back with raspberries and blackberries for a period of time before the forest grows back in, and that's very safe to be gathering. Or, you know, the farm fields, especially the smaller fields that aren't being used quite as intensively, it's not sort of an industrial agriculture, there's all kinds of wonderful edible weeds like burdock and dandelion and milkweed that are found along the edges of the pasture. And organic farming is uh, certainly not... Uh, found throughout the state by any means, but there's enough of it that you can find these organic farm fields where gathering the weeds, you know, from the edges and things like that are very safe to eat. That's great. Let's talk about rice a little bit. You did a video, the way time flies, probably over five, five years ago at this point, about wild rice and harvesting rice and how there's so much fear about grains. There's a lot of anti-grain material out there, which most of it I agree with in terms of conventional grains and these grains that can mimic the same response that a gluten-containing grain would cause for the body. But in your case, in some of your research and experimentation, you found that most people can tolerate some good wild harvested, what would be quote-unquote organic wild rices. Talk us through some of your, your findings there. Yeah, the, the thing for me, Evan, is that I I don't like it, <laughs> to put it bluntly, um, when nutritional dogma states things or asserts things that can be contradicted by observations of people who are either still living today or lived recently enough that we have very good documentation of what they ate and what the health that they experienced was. And the we live in a population obviously where people want some really, you know, reduced sound bites. They want it to be very simple and for some people it's, you know, don't eat grain becomes the sound bite for them and they really latch onto that. But in fact, if they do that, they're eliminate, eliminating dietary diversity that they might do extremely well with. Um, you know, for me, looking at people who lived not just in the Great Lakes region of here in North America, but even beyond into further northeast of that, we know that indigenous people in this part of the world were consuming wild rice. And in some places, it was a very important staple with them consumed, you know, multiple times a week, potentially throughout the entire year. And yet these people were not experiencing any health effects detrimental health effects as a result of that. In fact, it can be shown when you look at their facial structure that they were still able to grow into these properly developed, well-formed humans with, you know, room in their faces for all of their teeth, as Western prices, you know, written about quite extensively. And so that's one example. Um, even when we're talking about a cultivated grain, Western price did uh, a wonderful um chapter on the folks living in the Outer Hebrides um, where these folks were cultivating oats and combining that with fish from the sea to have this wonderful diet that, you know, was experiencing essentially none of the disastrous health outcomes that we might see here in the U.S. with a grain-based diet, especially as we go more and more generations uh, down this grain-based road because physical degeneration is cumulative through the generations. So we're just seeing, you know, more and more health 
uh, problems as a result of this diet. But people should just understand that not all grains are made equally. Some are actually very nutrient-dense, and we can talk about that a little bit. Some of them are actually, um, as far as their polyunsaturated fatty acids go, are primarily omega-3 fatty acids. Um, so they're not all skewed toward, you know, omega-6 fatty acids that might be uh, pro-inflammatory and immune system suppressing when they're consumed in too high an amount in the diet. Right. And Arthur, here, the, the case that you just outlined is the exact reason that I've not written a diet book to date. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it, it's crazy because people, they do, we have this reductionist mindset. Well, what does that leave us with? XYZ is bad. So what does that leave me with? Give me my list of 10 foods so I can go eat those and be healthy. And even in some cases where people are on something like an autoimmune diet, where it's very, very limited, even then they can still struggle and have various health symptoms. So it's not to say that diet's not important. I think it is a key component of health, but I think you would probably agree that there's other lifestyle factors that are playing into this whole picture. And if you're just changing this one piece of your, your life, the nutrition piece, if you're just sort of tweaking this all the time, you're ignoring the whole other 90 or whatever percent you may believe that, that creates us and, and our ability to, to tolerate stress. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that diet is obviously extremely important, but it's our movement, our exposure to the elements, our conscientious exposure to the elements for, you know, our ability to generate vitamin D, which is hugely important when it comes to autoimmune disorders. Um, all of these things are something that, of course, wild foods give you, or for that matter, even growing your own food where you're needing to be out there um, in the in the out of doors, in contact with the soil, and moving and needing to do some type of work that would be very different than simply going to the supermarket. Uh, I'm I'm not claiming that supermarket food is all bad. That's not what I mean to say. But generally speaking, um, anything in your life way that ends up getting you outdoors and getting you moving more is just going to benefit you that much better. Um, you know and I always have this really hard time dealing with diet or lifestyle advice that is always put in the negative. Don't eat this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I just think that's a weird way to go through life. So I'm always wanting to express it as a positive, um, you know, find these qualities in your food. If you're seeking grains, look for these types of grains because they tend to be healthiest instead of just sort of don't do this and avoid that kind of thing. Right. That makes sense. And I know this is a tough question because it's kind of a chicken or egg question, but when we're looking at people that are having all these food sensitivities, we're seeing the rise of all these autoimmune diseases. I mean, what percent of this battle do you believe is linked to people making the wrong food choices? I mean, is this 10% of the problem? Is this 50%? Because then we look at issues with, like you said, vitamin D. And then we look at people that are working third shift, which is a carcinogen now stated. So yes, yes. It, it's how much of this this puzzle is actually related to nutrition, if you could throw a, a number at it. I know that's tough to do. Yeah, that that. And I don't know would be the honest answer, but if we want to, if we want to include 
aspects of our microbiome that are in large part, but not entirely diet related, then this figure that I would give would be much larger than if we sort of excluded that. Because I think one of the really big pieces here is not only are we consuming allergenic foods that have you know, some pretty serious synthetic or, you know, chemical exposures that essentially build a person's response so that their body is simply primed and ready to respond in this really allergenic and and inflammatory pathway manner once they get exposed to sort of the next allergen that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. But then we got to remember that we're completely destroying the health of our microbiome with rampant antibiotic use, with water that is chlorinated and fluoridated, with other exposures that are also endocrine disrupting to us and how that may play into this whole thing, particularly, you know, consuming liquids and and fatty foods out of plastic containers on a near daily basis. I mean, I just think all of this really pieces together a a pretty compelling story of how we need to get off this industrial life way. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, well said. I was actually working with a female this morning who she had been on something kind of like a paleo inspired template. I think she had she had done some fermented or some some soaked nuts and seeds and things like that. And she had the diet perfect for what she claimed, you know, five or 10 years. Yet when I got some lab results back, she had yeast problems. She had blastocystis parasite infections. She had enterococcus bacterial infections. She had adrenal hormone issues. So it's just amazing to see that if you've only been shown, it's almost like it's almost like what we've done with the health and fitness industry is we've put blinders on people like a horse at the Kentucky Derby. And we said, this is the only direction you need to look. But what you and I are kind of alluding to is taking these blinders off and looking at there's probably about a thousand different variables that are really at play here. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, I think that, again, like you said earlier, diet is really important, but it's simply not the only factor. And, you know, your diet may be this absolutely wonderful, perfect diet, but if you're dealing with a really serious Uh, a really serious health issue that was brought on by 20 or 30 years of exposure to our industrial foods, our typical pharmaceutical medicine that is used really widely by people, um, lots of exposure to the leachates from plastics, all of the VOCs in your home that are coming from your carpets, your paint, the foam, Um, in your furniture, the flame retardants. I mean, you may have some really serious things that are going to take more than just this sort of, oh, I've been on this diet for a month. You might be needing years and years of a really tailored diet to work through what was, you know, most of your life of pretty bad exposures. Yep. Well said. So in terms of homes, if you were to design a home, I know this is uh, this is kind of like an imagination question. If we were to design a home that was pleasing to our DNA, how how would we do that? Would we put a lot of skylights in, or what would you think would be a, an optimal way to to make a home that would that would please uh, our genetics? Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, I would certainly have um, a very well lit home just for that brightness that really seems to improve our mood. 
um, I would have a home that is made of wood, and there would be very little in this home that would be, um, you know, essentially off-gassing or volatilizing. Um, and that would even come down to, you know, considering the building materials pretty heavily. Um, you know, we use particle board, plywood, fiberboard, those kind of things today. And most people don't realize that the resin holding those wood particles together are, are contains formaldehyde. And formaldehyde has been classified as a carcinogen. And the primary source of formaldehyde in indoor air comes from the very things that we're building our homes with. Um, it would not have any wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, um, again, because it would be a wood floor. Um, I would certainly have uh, maybe an area rug of, you know, organically grown cotton or wool or those kind of natural materials. But even once we got done thinking about how we would build a home that didn't lead to toxic exposures, I would want a home that allows me to continue this kind of feral movement. Um, maybe instead of just having a set of stairs going up to a second floor, if there was one, I might literally have like a fireman's pole that I climbed up and slid down sometimes so that I was just continuing to increase the diversity of movement that I experienced. I mean, that might sound like a silly example, um, but I, I don't, I want to use my upper body in my home some of the time. Um, I might want to have someplace in my home uh, some cobbles, stones that I walk over. And certainly this wouldn't be something that I would have in the middle of the floor, but Maybe when I was at my desk, it was underfoot, so I could be, you know, strengthening and stretching my feet. Um, just really thinking about how I'm going to bring aspects of the outer doors that build a strong, healthy human and bring them inside the home as much as I can without it becoming you know, sort of too in the way of the home functioning, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. It, it, it almost be like taking a patch of forest and then taking glass, big glass bulletproof sheets or something, and then just encasing a particular <laughs> yeah, square yeah, footage but... of woods. <laughs> oh, it'd be, that would be wonderful. I mean, as complex of buildings that as can be done just to make it so we're not just looking at the same 90 degree corners all the time i mean all of that kind of stuff so this house was again it was a place that you felt safe and protected but it also continued to strengthen you and sort of undo you know some of the things that human domestication really tends to push onto the human body and, and essentially leading to an atrophication of, you know, particularly certain muscle groups. Right. Which I'm a fan of chiropractic care, massage, and all of the good things we can do to our body. But if we could just incorporate what we're supposed to be doing, it's likely that some of these industries would have a significant decrease in business because people would be better. They wouldn't need antibiotics. Well, I, I, I kind of argue that most people should never take antibiotics unless you're dying. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, I really wish that people would think about, like, for example, what are all of the movements that you rarely do? Maybe jumping or squatting or crawling. 
these kind of things that, you know, most people go through an entire week without doing because they're walking on such, you know, manic surfaces and constructed surfaces all of the time. And if my house isn't built to make me have to do some of those things, then I'm going to make sure that it's my own life way that includes those things, even if it's with my house, because those are the kinds of things that the human body needs for health. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm picturing the, like the climbing motion of climbing over like a fallen tree, like climbing over a log. I probably do that movement maybe once a year in the house if I'm trying to like climb over the dog, and that's about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And of course, anybody who is doing it foraging or hunting or fishing, and so this would include, you know, essentially all of our indigenous ancestors, um, what, what doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, you have indigenous ancestors. You just may need to go back a little further in history for it. I mean, these were things that they were doing on a continual basis. Every day they stepped into the forest. These were movements that they had to um, incorporate as they locomoted around on their landscape. And we just do so little of it that our bodies end up suffering for a range of reasons. I mean, it's not even just the atrophy in the bones and the connective tissue and the muscles, but it's even moving things like lymph around our body. People forget that lymph, you know, we have way more lymph in our body than we do blood, and it's primary mechanism of moving from the tips of our toes back up into our core is through a diversity of movement, and that's crucial for the functioning of our immune system. That's a, that's an amazing concept there. So we've not only has sedentarism and then farming and s just sitting, all of that, not only has it made us want to consume things more because kind of if I if I kind of extrapolate what you're saying here, the the modern life we've created almost encourages consumerism because if you were walking and foraging and constantly moving with the season, you wouldn't have had that much time to really accumulate a lot of stuff. Oh, that's absolutely the case. Obviously, if you're nomadic, you're, a large number of possessions becomes a huge hindrance to you. Um, you know, if you look at throughout the world, most hunter-gatherers, and, you know, this just to take a quick tangent, this is really relevant information because this is the evolution of our own human bodies. They experienced is still very much built into us, into our genetics, and we need to experience that same diet and that same movement they did um, for us to really be healthy. So we go back to the hunter-gatherers around the world. Almost all hunter-gatherers were moving multiple times a year, um, generally between two and 80 movements a year within their home range. Wow. And that, yeah, and that kind of, not only were they moving their physical camp location, but then each day it was hunger, essentially, that got them up and made them walk out into the forests, into the prairies, into the mountains, wherever it was they lived. And hunger was that prime motivating factor to go someplace and experience all that movement. But today, of course, hunger doesn't necessarily generate that because we can simply reach into the refrigerator or take a very casual walk down the aisles of the supermarket 
And so, you know, many people, if that's where they live and they simply don't have that ability to forage, that's okay. You just need to build movement into your life so that you can still be experiencing that kind of, I mean, I consider movement to be a food group. So when you think of it in that way, you realize you have to have it every day. And I just call it an experiential food. It's something that you have to experience on a daily basis. Yeah, well said. And I, I like my refrigerator, my freezer. It's a, it's a great invention for sure. But Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm completely dependent on it as well. <laughs> um, even though we're bringing in some fresh food from the local farms and from our forests here, I mean, without the refrigerator, we, our lives would be really different. <laughs> totally, totally. So it's not to say, you know, we have to to leave the modern world that we've created, but it's basically let's try to find a good balance, and that level of balance will depend on the person, how far down this spectrum you need to go. But you've done a great job of outlining some different steps that you can do to basically go as far or as close to modern or, you know, ancient however you want to go, as far as you want to go. And it seems like I tend to be sort of one way or the other. It seems like the further that you go towards bringing in some of these old things, quote-unquote, that we that we are built for, the further you go that way, the less time you have to sit there and ruminate. Like I've seen good research on nature reducing rumination, for example. So we're looking at we don't even have to bring in herbs and supplements for depression necessarily. We could just get movement and be in nature, for example. But it seems like each step that you've outlined here, we get closer and closer to, I don't know, would you call it bliss? Would you call it contentment? I mean, what are we all striving for at the end of the day? Well, for me, I'm striving uh, in part for health. That's sort of the selfish piece of it. Um, although being healthy isn't really being selfish. Uh, because if you think about it, being unhealthy does, in fact, cost the world in a lot of resources. And this is not to, you know, try to make someone who may be experiencing illness feel really bad. But the, the point of it is sick people cost the world more, not only just in resources, but in time of their families, their communities, and these kinds of things. So being healthy is wonderful for the individual, but it's also one of the worst ways to walk on this planet, to tread softly, so to speak. And for me, I'm not looking for longevity. I do know that there's a, you know, many fad, you know, fad diet groups that are really focused on living forever. And that is absolutely not what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm really just looking to have health for the time that I'm alive. And one other thing, and that's transmit that health to the next generation. We, we often don't think of health as an intergenerational thing, but it really is. You know, it's one of the reasons why um, parents, even before they think about conception, getting onto a really healthy life way with lots of movement and, again, conscientious exposure to the elements and a real nutrient-dense diet, it is such a major benefit to their child and the health that they're going to experience over their lifetime. And this is what I'm going for is just I want to be able to operate at my fullest capacity possible all the time, and I can't do that if I'm ill. 
Agreed. Yeah, I kind of look at pregnancy as like a five trimester thing now. You know, you hear some people talking about fourth trimester for postnatal care, but I, I look at the the prenatal before even conception. So it really is. It's a five or six trimester deal. It seems like. Yeah, that's a really nice way of looking at it. I like that a lot. Yeah, well, we've had a lot of fun. I really appreciate your willingness to jump all over the place with me. I think in terms of overall podcast, I think you're going to be something like episode 200 for this show. And I think this is by far one of the top three shows that really outlines, zooms in, zooms out, and really just pulls us out of ourselves and kind of look look helps us to look at ourselves in a different perspective so i really appreciate your your ability and willingness to do to to kind of jump around with me today oh no this was fun i mean you and i have not had an opportunity to do a podcast previously so i feel like this is a really nice day of just seeing uh the potential topics that could be maybe explored in a more in-depth manner at a later date this is super fun (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Well, tell people about your website. We'll send them back to ArthurHaines.com. You have several books there. You have some other resources. Are you able to talk about the book that you've alluded to? Is that is that coming? Is that this year, next year? Yeah, sure. Yep. Um, I'm just about to enter the last chapter of writing, and uh, it's currently titled A New Path. I don't know if that will be the ultimate published title because I don't have complete control over that. Um, But this is a book, a large book about rewilding. And when I say rewilding, I just want to be clear that this is not all about humans going back and living in dark shelters. Um, Although that the thought of that for at least some groups of people is a really cool idea for me, but it's everybody moving along a trajectory of health and sovereignty and living more softly on this planet. And as a result, it has to incorporate a lot of things. Um, Like one of the things that I really loved about the paleo movement was the fact that it really solidly linked together diet and movement better than any other dietary movement that I'd ever seen. But humans need more than that. I mean, we need community. We need to talk about the kinds of medicine that we use. We need to talk about the water that we put inside our body. Uh, Humans need hormesis for strength. They need to continually expand their limits of what they can endure. I mean, this is how, you know, muscular uh, strength conditioning moves ahead for people is by constantly stressing, but we need to do this in more than just our muscles. Um, and, and so I took all of these kind of topics or as many as would fit in a book of this size that I see as being really important for humans and wrote chapters on all of them. So it's a much bigger thing, just a diet and movement book. And I'll just say the, the, idea of rewilding being incorporated into this book is the one um, that myself and Daniel Vitalis and some others out there who have been sort of espousing, and that is we're not talking about going back and living as hunter-gatherers because our landscapes have changed. So we're talking about a merger of those really beneficial things that indigenous people had, like almost zero chronic disease, a near zero rate of cancer, 
supportive communities and all of these kinds of things and merging that with those beneficial technologies that we have today so that just to create two examples, we can have a cancer-free lifestyle with amazing trauma medicine instead of only taking what the modern world offers or only taking what the ancestral world offers. We want to put those together. And that's the vision of rewilding that's being incorporated into this book. That sounds awesome. So when this thing gets closer or when it's uh, out, then let's chat again. I'd love to have you back, and we'll we'll geek out some more together. Oh, that would be great. Super. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for your time. Is there any last messages, words of wisdom, anything you wanted to share with people? No, except just to say I, I like the work that you and, and a bunch of others are doing, and so I'm just really happy that people like you are out there giving people an alternative to kind of the standard American life way. Well, to maintain my sanity, this is what I have to do. So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks again for having me be part of your show. All right, take care, Arthur. Okay. What a great guy, isn't he? I mean, he's the type of guy that you would want to sit around a campfire and just talk with for hours. You'd probably make some organic s'mores, some organic dark chocolate s'mores or something and hang out with Arthur. Just a really fun guy. I'm glad that you were here to be part of this conversation. And I look forward to having Arthur back. Like I said, go check out his work. Looking forward to seeing what he's got with the book. Uh, we kind of talk behind the scenes of the logistics of making it happen because a lot of people, they're not really interested in publishing the ideas of rewilding because it's controversial. You know, you're potentially putting companies out of business if you're saying, hey, don't be a consumer. You know, some of these ideas are sort of uh, anti, I don't even know what you would call it, not necessarily anti-capitalist. I'm not sure quite how to classify it, but just telling people, look, you probably aren't going to get happy if you buy a bunch of things. How about just go spend some time in the woods and, and see if you're happy then, which I like my toys. I like my laptop and my computer and my uh microphone my camera to do my work but you know I find the most joy from non-materialistic things which sounds cliche but if you look into cliches a lot of them are pretty pretty darn true so I'm glad you enjoyed the show and of course as always if you'd like to schedule a 15 minute free call with myself chat about your health symptoms your health goals get some lab testing run I've been having so much fun over the past couple months since I switched my stool testing lab I've been finding a lot more parasites finally resolving people's problems that they've had gut symptoms that don't make sense for years and even on tests that they've had run before they've showed up negative and now we're finding things so it's just it's so fun I love my job best job in the world and you can schedule that free consult with myself to chat, see if we're a good fit. All that's back at my website, notjustpaleo.com. Take care. Bye-bye. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool. Kiss a girl good night and then he leaves her. She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible rules. Why I'm in the tire, got to watch out, girl. Wanna see her by her eyes out, girl Cause I've been watching, you've been hurting Let me be the one that loves you better